Would you please allow your word through your Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our faith, to renew us with a joy of our salvation, and to fill us with hope for the future because of all of the great things that happened when you gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we commit ourselves to hearing the word, to obeying the word, to living it out. Give us the strength we need for all of this. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Well, by now, I suppose you are in one of two camps. You know very much what you want for Christmas, and you really, really want it. Or you have no idea what to buy for other people for Christmas, and you're worried about that. I don't know. Um, I heard a story that uh, radio pastor Chuck Swindoll told about when he was a little boy. He said, um, when I was a kid, I really, really wanted a basketball for Christmas so badly that I could scream. He said, I dropped all kinds of hints. I made false phone calls to my mother in another voice, telling her that her son really ought to have a basketball. I found the cheapest prices. I I dropped those on the breakfast table. You know all those kinds of things. And finally, he said, there appeared under the Christmas tree a box looked just the size of a basketball. I could just feel myself making shots with it. Christmas Day came, and I tore into that thing, and it was a world globe. (laughs) He says... Have you ever tried to dribble a world globe? (laughs) I mean, he said, you can't even inflate the dumb thing. (laughs) He just didn't appreciate what he got for Christmas. Um, I, I wonder if we really appreciate what God gave us for Christmas. You do know that December 25th is... It's highly unlikely that that particular night is the night that our Lord was born in Bethlehem. It is a time when we say we've set apart to worship Christ, and and indeed we do. I know if you're like me, and you are, and I'm like you, the world just wants to press us into its mold, doesn't it? And we get so caught up in so many things that sometimes our worship of Christ and our meditation on the realities of the incarnation of Christ in that first Christmas and all that God gave to us in Christ, sometimes it gets marginalized, doesn't it? And we are so caught up in uh, the gift giving and making sure everything feels like Christmas, whatever that means. Well, this morning, I want to once again focus on the heart of Christmas, on what it is that God really gave us in Christ. Last week, you'll recall, we talked about the miracle of Christmas. That was the virgin birth. And what does that have to do with Christmas? And how does it fit in? And why is it significant? And I trust that was helpful to you. Again, this Sunday, I want to follow sort of a doctrinal theme. and, And I want us to reflect upon... The reality of the incarnation of Christ. That God became man. And what a mystery that is. That the very one who spoke the worlds into existence, uh, the second member of the Godhead, that he would, without 
without losing any of his godness, would take on an additional role or office of being human, adding that to his repertoire. He is now God and he's all human. What a mystery. How could that be? Um, If you've been around here very long, you've heard my cockroach story. It's something that I developed probably spontaneously one time teaching teens many years ago. And as we ponder the reality of of the fact that God would become human, how, how could that be? What kind of a disparity is there between a human being and Almighty God? It's immeasurable. And I I came up with a little word picture about cockroaches. It's as though you have some cockroaches under your kitchen sink. Wouldn't that be awful? And you've got a little colony of cockroaches there. and, And you have a little boy in your home and he likes to open those kitchen cupboard doors and play with the cockroaches. They're his friends. And, and you really have a lot of fun with the cockroaches. In fact, he's named them, and he plays with them, and he says good morning to them, and he checks on them at night. That's easy to do. Just flip on the light real quick. And there they are, and you are just mortified that you have cockroaches in your kitchen. It's despicable. And, and so you call up the, the uh, what do you call the guy that wants, exterminator. You call the exterminator and, and you're going to wipe out the cockroaches because they are despicable and they don't deserve to live. And they certainly can't live in your kitchen. And your little boy finds out that the exterminator is coming to wipe out your cockroaches and he's so distressed because he loves those cockroaches. And in fact, and we can go different directions with the analogy or the word picture now, but the point is, he loves them so much, or we could build it into the story that you love the cockroaches so much that when the exterminator comes to wipe out the cockroaches, you would give your son to die in place of the cockroaches. And you would say, give me a break. But can I suggest to you that there is at some level, a measurable, a measurable distance between cockroaches and human beings. We both need oxygen to live. Somehow there must be a brain in both of us. We have appendages. We need food. We live in the same sphere, biosphere. There is, even though cockroaches are meaningless in many ways. Probably a result of the curse and a distortion of creation. There is somehow a measurable distance between us. Uh, Do you know that you cannot, you cannot put a measurement, you cannot put a scale, you cannot gauge in any way The the distance between God and man. He is infinitely beyond humanity. And so to say that you would give your child for a cockroach actually is less shocking in reality than for God to say, I will give my son for these humanoids. And in fact, in our sinfulness, we didn't deserve it. That's why it is so significant then when the Word of God tells us that it's out of His love and His kindness for us. That God at just the right time 
came and through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit implanted in Mary, His Son, all God, all man, as a gift to us. So can I tell you to be at ease, if you get a world globe instead of a basketball, which would be indeed most distressing, um, although globes are pretty neat, um, that you already have been given the greatest gift that anyone could ever have. And that is, you have been given Christ in the form of a human to come and do for you what you could not do for yourself. And so I want us to develop this line of thought today. And, and in fact, we're going to parallel a lot our outline from last week. Not the content, but our outline from last week. As last week with the miracle of Christmas, we talked about the virgin birth. This week, the mystery of Christmas. As we focus upon this most remarkable concept called the incarnation. You know incarnation, that's a, a word that has Latin derivative in, um, in to, to be in existence of or to take on in carna flesh, to, to take on flesh or to be in human form or to be in fleshly form is the idea there. That God who had no flesh would take on flesh. That he would change his form and become a human being and become in the flesh. To become human. I'll tell you further, if we're not going to develop this this morning, but it's worth pondering. That in this sovereign plan of God and in this marvelous mystery of the incarnation, that God then would stay in a body for all of eternity. In the second member of the Godhead. Yes, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it's a, a new kind of body. It's a celestial body. It's a body that has been sown um, in decay. And it has been raised incorruptible. But nonetheless, when we get to heaven, do you know that you will see Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who was born of Mary who died on the cross for us, who was buried and rose again and who ascended right in front of the disciples, we will see Him in a recognizable human form body because of the incarnation. Go figure. It's a mystery. Why would God do that? Well, I don't have all the answers, but I have a few things that I like to think about. And, and so uh, this morning, it is our goal to share five reasons that the Incarnation really matters. In a similar way that we asked ourselves with the familiarity of the phrase, the virgin birth, do I really understand why it matters? And I hope we helped you with that a little bit. Um, this week we hear this incarnation and that God became flesh. Why? Why did it have to happen this way? What, does the, what are some of the specific reasons? So let's dig in. We're going to do a little bit of Bible study. I hope you have a joy in turning in your Bible and doing study together in the form of a sermon format and, and let the Spirit of God teach you and, and that there's just great delight in, in being together with your church family as we enter and interact with God's Word together. Why does the incarnation of Christ really matter? Number one, like last week, prophetical reasons. There are prophetical reasons 
that the incarnation matters. Let's begin, um, first of all, though, in reading a foundational text to the concept of our message today. And then I want to show you in Luke 1, and we'll go with point 1. I got ahead of myself just a touch. Will you open to John's Gospel in chapter 1, please? John's Gospel in chapter 1. And let's read foundational to our message to just prepare our hearts. Um, The first 14 verses of John's Gospel, you know that Matthew and Luke give us detailed accounts of the birth of Christ, and but John talks about the wonder and the mystery of the Incarnation in his opening chapter. Let's read it together. I'm using the ESV, John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now that's specifically talking about Jesus, second member of the Godhead, who came in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Would you underline that part in your Bible? The darkness has not overcome it. Do you feel like I do that darkness is getting darker? That evil is on the rise? Do you sometimes wonder if the darkness is going to overtake the light? It will not. It cannot. God has a plan and it's unfolding according to his timetable. And even though we live in a world of darkness and, and, and sinful atrocity, listen, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We've been seeing that in our studies in Matthew that we've been doing. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, this is a great verse, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You ought to underline that that verse as well. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. And the Word, this is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is, as clearly as it can be stated, that Jesus took on flesh. This is not a metaphor. This is not a word picture. This is not a spiritualization. And it is, like the virgin birth, very much this point of the humanity of Christ, a place, it's a touch point of attack for those who are heretics or heretical in their theology or liberal in their theology, and they want to take away the reality of the fact that Jesus would become human. And they attack The reality of the incarnation. In fact, it's interesting. We'll also not have time to develop this this morning, but it's an interesting point that in your New Testament, when you read the epistle of 1 John, okay, so we're reading Gospel of John, the good news of John, but later in your New Testament, right before the book of Revelation, you have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Those are epistles, letters that were written to believers The epistle of 1 John is a good one to read even for devotionally between now and Christmas 
But that entire epistle was written because there was a heresy that was impacting the church that was sweeping through the areas there where they had been ministering. And the heresy was that Jesus had not taken on genuine human flesh, that Jesus was not a human. And John, in fact said that if you do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh and that he's of God and that Jesus was God, then you are an antichrist. It's a a powerful response to those who would say the incarnation never really happened the way the Bible says. First John is very much a response to that. So here it is right here. The word became flesh. That's the incarnation. The taking on human form. So why does it matter? Here we go, if you're taking notes. The first one is prophetic reasons. And we want to turn back to the beginning of Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. And look at these interesting verses here. Let's pick it up back at verse 30 and let's remind ourselves who's saying these words. It's the angel Gabriel. And this is the part where he's speaking to Mary giving her the news that she will become pregnant with the Holy One, the Holy Child, to be born of her through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb. This is Luke 1.31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him... Now, I want you to notice this next phrase. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Verse 33. And he... Okay, who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus coming through Mary in the flesh. He will be given the throne of his father David. Don't miss that. And he will, verse 33, reign over the house of Jacob forever... And of his kingdom, look, there will be no end. So he is in control. Make no mistake about that. Now, what's interesting about this passage of scripture that Gabriel is speaking to Mary is that it has a prophetic basis. And you might not always realize that. And so hold your bulletin or your hand and look, because I want you to look at both passages at the same time. So we're going to windshield wiper here a little bit. And I want you to go way back in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7. Samuel was a prophet who recorded the historical life of King David. This is David who killed Goliath who sinned with Bathsheba, who wrote the Psalms, who was a man after God's own heart, whom God made specific promise to. Now this promise is called the Davidic Covenant. You may have heard that before. What that is, is that that God in His sovereign plan decided to, to bless David... And that out of David would come the Messiah one day. Now, what's interesting about this in a prophetic context, though, what we're talking about is words that are pronounced about something that haven't come true yet, that have a future meaning. Meaning, that's what we mean by prophetic. Okay, they're stated here, but they're not true yet here, but they're going to come true in the future. And so in the Davidic covenant, in this promise where God is going to make a promise to King David, I want you to notice, okay, so get your Bible where it stands up in the middle like this. You see what I'm doing? 
All right. So that you can look at Luke one and you can look at second Samuel seven. All right. And kind of look at second Samuel seven first and begin with verse 12. And God is speaking to David and he says in verse 12 of second Samuel seven, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your forefathers, okay, that's just all a metaphor for dying. David, you're going to die. It's the way of all men. And when you are put in the grave like your forefathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, now, take a breath and think about this. Often in prophetic teaching, there is dual meaning. All right, so there will be an immediate contextual promise that is made. And in this case, you're going to see that he's talking about David's son, Solomon. In other words, God is telling David, I'm going to do some things. I'm going to make a promise to you that there are some things that are going to take place that are going to come true in Solomon's life. But then you see some things that the New Testament ends up affirming that it had a double meaning. It was more than just about Solomon. And in this case, you'll see that he's talking both about Solomon and he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is of the line and lineage of David. All right, you with me? Okay, back to 2 Samuel, still holding on to Luke 1. Back to 2 Samuel 7. I will establish his kingdom. And he's going to come from your body, verse 12 says. It's going to be your offspring. This is not spiritual. This is not metaphorical. This is a physical, biological line from David. And he shall build a house for my name. Okay, that makes sense in Solomon, right? Because remember what David did. He spent much of his life with a wonderful heart desire to build a temple to the Lord. And he collected gold and silver and all kinds of stockpile of, of material. And God said to him, remember what God said to David? He said, you have blood on your hands. Too much blood on your hands and you're not going to be the one that's going to build my temple. But your son Solomon is going to build my, what is the word that he used right there? He will build my house. Okay, let's, let's windshield wiper over to Luke 1. Notice that there is a reigning over the house of Jacob in Luke 1.33. Back to 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish... Here's the second key word that you're going to see in Luke chapter 1 verse 32. I will establish the throne. And here's the third word that parallels Luke chapter 1. And I will establish his kingdom. And notice the next word, Forever. Did Solomon's kingdom last forever? No, and then notice that this cannot be about Jesus. I will be to him a father, that's true. And he shall be to me a son, that could be about Jesus. When he commits iniquity, can that be about Jesus? Absolutely not. It was about Solomon, and we know that Solomon, after the first part of his kingdom, his heart turned away through the influence of his pagan wives, he began to worship false gods and he sinned grievously against God and God judged him for it. And so Solomon said, when he commits iniquity, God says, I will discipline him with the, but now we're back to something that kind of fits Jesus. Look at this. 
And I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Didn't Jesus get beaten with rod and many stripes? So can you see how this stuff kind of melds together? And you know what's surprising is you'll be reading, in, for example, in Acts chapter 2 and, and later passages in the book of Acts where we have recorded extensive messages by Stephen, for example, and by Peter. And often, you know what they'll do if you read those messages in Acts, they will begin, because they're speaking to Jews in Jerusalem most of the time they're in Acts, they will begin and they will give this historical account of the history and story of Israel going back to, sometimes to Adam, sometimes to Abraham, and they will give an account of these things, and then they will end up pointing to Christ, and in their messages, you know, they'll say surprising things, and they'll say, and that is why it says, the psalmist said, bah, 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 speaking of Jesus, and you're looking at your Bible, and you're thinking, how did I, how was I supposed to know that was about Jesus? And it was, because they understood it, and they were saying, and that's the way these prophetic passages work. There's like a dual meaning. And so here you are. And he says, he shall build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Doesn't that sound like, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign of the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Let's finish 2 Samuel 7. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, there they are again, those key words, shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be, there it is again, your throne will be established forever. Do you see, back to Luke 1 now, do you see that the angel Gabriel is doing nothing more than emphasizing with Mary that the one who is going to be born of her is going to qualify to be from the lineage of David who will sit on his throne. And we know from last week that the virgin birth mattered because historically speaking, remember what happened. We had the curse of Jeconiah. And that coming out of Solomon, David, and then through Solomon, down the line in Matthew chapter 1, his lineage, we have Jeconiah, and he doesn't qualify to sit anybody on the throne because God judged him. And he said, no more will any of your descendants sit on the throne of David. And indeed, Jesus was not Joseph's son, only legally, like by adoption. But when you go to Luke chapter 3, you have the line and lineage of David through his son Nathan, and it goes down through, and Jesus is a biological descendant from David so that he can literally fill, fulfill in a physical form the Davidic covenant that in the future kingdom of God, in eternity future, Jesus will sit on the throne of David forever and ever with perfect justice and he qualifies because he became a human being. Because God said, out of your body, David, will come one who will sit on your throne forever and ever. I think that's pretty neat. Isn't that a mystery? Reason number one, the incarnation matters. Prophetical reasons to have a son seated eternally on the throne of David with perfect justice, as promised in the Davidic covenant. And the second reason is a logical reason, and this has to do with one of the ministries of the Lord Jesus that results from his incarnation. Let's go to that New Testament book of Hebrews uh, that is um, a very interesting book. And, and in Hebrews chapter 2, 
uh, verses 16 through 18. Let's read a couple verses and then let's go to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And I want you to see that there is a very logical reason that Jesus would put on flesh that also has, in a lot of ways, a very practical um, help to us spiritually. This has to do with Jesus being a sympathetic high priest. So the prophetical reason has to do with having a son seated on the throne of David. The logical reason has to do with having a sympathetic high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. Now, 16 and 17 are going to apply to our third point in just a minute, but let's read it now. For surely, Hebrews 2, 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So he's arguing that angels don't need a savior. People need a savior. All right. He didn't come to save angels. He came to save people. Therefore, he had to be made. Notice that he had to be made. That's the incarnation like his brother's. Okay, his fellow Israelites in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for because he himself, that's Jesus, who had to become like his brothers in every way, he has suffered when tempted He is able then to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that interesting? Now flip the page to chapter 4, and this is the most familiar passage about this aspect of us having a high priest, a sympathetic high priest, one who can relate to us, who is a blessing to us spiritually in his intercessory role as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now look what it says. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Don't give up your faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, so in other words, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Anybody ever have a time of need? Yeah. Anybody think that you can't get close to this transcendent God? You think he's too much. I can't get into his presence. Too much awe. I'll do like Isaiah. I'll just fall on my face. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a man who isn't worthy to stand in your presence. And we have one, Jesus Christ the righteous, who became a human. And one of the reasons he became a human that works out very practically for us is that experientially, all right, we know that, we know that in his deity, he in his omniscience, knows all things. He knows all about humans. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He does know as God how we feel. But from our vantage point, we are told that there is a benefit to the fact that our high priest, that is the one who represents us before the Father. And Paul said in in 2 Timothy 2.5, by the way, that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And that he came, it's another reason for the incarnation, 
2 Timothy 2.5, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who came to be a ransom for us all, to buy us back from sin. In so living with us in his humanity, he experienced everything that a human can experience temptation-wise or feeling-wise. So let's think about that. Do you think that Jesus got so hungry that he would trade his birthright for a bowl of portage? Do you think that he would have given the farm for a loaf of bread? He was so starving. Ah, He was there, wasn't he? And Satan was after him, wasn't he? But did he fail? He did not fail. The Hebrews reinforces that. Without sin. And even though in his humanity, Jesus in the flesh was so hungry that his body screamed out to him to compromise everything, to satisfy that appetite, he did not. How about being so fatigued that he could fall asleep in the middle of a life-threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee? Utterly so tired he couldn't pick his arms up over his head. From the utter exhaustion of the press of the crowds and endless, endless hours and days of ministry. He knows what it is to be so tired that he wants to give up. Did he give up? How about standing at the graveside of a beloved dear one and recognizing how ugly death is so that tears roll down and your heart breaks over what disease and death and dying does to people. He was there, wasn't he? And so even though in his omniscience as God, he would have known all that, there is something to the reality of the incarnation That had Jesus not been a man, he would not have known by experience what we know and go through every day. And as a result of that, we can go to him with a confidence. There is nothing that you can go to God with that Jesus, now sitting at his right hand, doesn't completely understand. And is able to say to the Heavenly Father, I know exactly how they feel. And they're ready to give up. And he he intercedes and he answers prayer. I think this is all a mystery. It's the mystery of the incarnation. And that's the second reason. But isn't it logical? It's logical that because he was a human, he he knows experientially what we go through. All kinds of temptations, all kinds of burdens, all kinds of weariness. How about being at a point of knowing the will of God and not wanting to do it? I know that it's God's will for me to do this, but there's a war inside me. Wasn't Jesus there in the garden? If it could be your will, Father, would you please remove this cup from me? I just don't want to go through it. Thirdly, and maybe most importantly, we have theological reasons for the incarnation. This has to do, first of all, Theologically, with a substitutionary lamb. Because he became human, he qualified to represent people on the cross as a substitutionary lamb of God. I've been driving back and forth a couple times to the University of Maryland Medical Center where we've been, and uh, praise the Lord for just unbelievable, this 80-year-old lady, my mother-in-law, having a kidney transplant at age 80 and just doing outstanding, and we just are awed and humbled. And I needed to go back and get Janet yesterday 
And I was listening to all things on the radio, um, to NPR radio. And there were some sociologists that were having a conversation that I was just really interested in. Not so much that I would support it, but interested to listen to it since it was on my radio and Jonathan was asleep and I was driving. You know what they were talking about? Societal evolution. They were talking about the fact that we have to worry about global crowding. And that the world is going to become overpopulated, but they were taking great hope. And I'm telling you, they were serious as a heart attack. They were taking great hope in the fact that one of the things we've been able to see, and I don't know where they've been looking, but one of the things we've been able to see progressing is the domestication of humans. Now that's a really interesting... And the illustration that they used was that, for example... As the more you crowd human beings in, the more domesticated they come, become and they can get along well. And that that is a distinction between humans and animals as a higher form of evolution. And they're optimistic and they project that as the globe becomes crowded, that people will become more and more cooperative and domesticated and be able to live in close spaces together. I was like screaming at the radio. What are you talking about? So they said, so you can't put 120 chimpanzees in in an aluminum tube in close quarters, crowded in seats together, and fly them for three and a half hours by themselves, because by the time you get to where you're going, there will only be two or three of the 120 chimpanzees left alive. They would never do that. They're not domesticated enough to do that. And their theory was that evolutionary process was at work. And with humans, we were more advanced. And the more crowded we become, the more domesticated we become. And they began to joke about the fact that eventually we will have floppy ears and like being scratched between our eyes. They laugh, laugh, laugh. I mean... I mean, are you, are you out of your ever-loving right mind if you think that people are just going to keep getting along better and better and better? That's not what I see going on. I was like, what planet are they living on? Do you know in the last 100 years that we have killed each other off at a greater rate and in more volume of numbers than all of history combined before that? We're not getting better and better. We have a huge issue. We are not becoming more domesticated. We are becoming more and more base and sinful and wretched. We have a problem and evolution isn't going to fix it. There is no such thing as evolution in case you're wondering. And the problem was fixed in the incarnation of Christ. Mankind is not going to figure out ways to just get along because of our wicked, sinful heart. In fact, the Bible is clear. The Apostle Paul was so clear in his instruction that as as the times uh, wax and wane towards the coming of the Lord, things will get worse and worse, won't they? And people will be lovers of themselves and they'll be destructive and they'll be arrogant and they'll be disobedient. So the issue here is that we have a problem. Uh, The third reason that the incarnation of Christ matters, and we'll use this as our conclusion, and I'll just list the other two, is a theological reason. And of this, the first part of it is, 
that he could become a qualified substitutionary lamb. Are you still in Hebrews chapter 4? Will you turn back to Hebrews chapter 2 and look down at verses 16 and 17 that we just read a minute ago? Look what it says. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He's all about helping people. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now look here. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, if you're taking notes, you want to write down 1 John 4.10 and 1 John 2.2. 1 John 4.10 and 1 John 2.2. There it says very specifically and pointedly that he came to be the propitiation for our sin. That word propitiation is kind of an old word, but it's a great word. If you're using a more modern uh, translation, perhaps like the NIV, what it will say is the atoning sacrifice for sin. And here's how we understand propitiation. Listen to me closely as we wrap up. You need to understand that God, who is a holy God, you know that, And he is completely just. So God in his holiness and his justice has established an unchangeable eternal requirement. And it is this. Okay. He's God. So he has the right because he's completely holy and because he's completely just. He didn't make this up arbitrarily, but springing out of the character of his holiness and his justice, there is established an eternal requirement unchangeable requirement and it is this sin must be paid for you cannot look the other way at sin that's not how it works because the character of God will not tolerate that sin must be judged the most familiar that's why we walk through the Romans road Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God so we all have a sin problem that's why we're not going to get along better and better and better And the wages, Romans 6.23, and the wages of this sin is death. There it is. This universal truism that springs from the holy character of God and His justice. Sin must be paid for. That's it. The problem is that a normal human being has no capacity whatsoever to pay the price for that sin. We can't do it. How many normal human beings out there? We're normal. We're just human beings. So you could have a conversation with God. And it could go something like this. Hey God, I know I'm a sinner. (laughs) Yep, you're a sinner. I know I've violated your word. I know that in the essence of my Adamic nature, because I'm a child of Adam, I am a sinner. And I'm not qualified to enter your presence because you are holy and you are just. And God says, indeed, that's true. So God, let's work out a deal that I would pay for my own sin. Can I do that? And he would say, of course you can pay for your own sin. If you want to. And you say, okay, let's go. Let's get started because I want to get it over with. And he would say, oh, there's where you don't understand. Because a human has no capacity to ever suffer the consequences of his sin to the degree that God's holiness and justice would ever be satisfied where he would say, okay, you don't have to worry about your sin. It can't happen. So you would suffer for eternity and you still would not meet the demands of God's holy justice. You follow me? Because you're a normal human being. And normal human beings have no capacity to meet this requirement. You can't do it. 
It just will never happen. But something happened at just the right time, Galatians 4.4. God sent His Son, born of a virgin, to come to be the propitiation for our sin. Here's what it is. When a regular human being with no capacity could not meet the demands of God's holiness or justice, God decided out of His love and His kindness to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so He made Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, into a God-man. All God, all man, who could take the sin of the world upon himself, and he alone could qualify in that form of all deity and all humanity with perfect sinlessness who had kept the law for us, and he alone could fully satisfy God's demands and penalty so that God would say, it is finished. It's all done. The plan is complete. So where you and I could get on the cross and die on the cross for our sins, we'd have to hang on the cross for all of eternity. And as a normal human being, we could never, God would never look down and say, okay, you've been there long enough. There's no such thing. But somehow, and that's why this is the mystery of Christmas. Somehow, in the mind of God, where God himself took on flesh, he became a qualified substitute And this is what propitiation is. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears the full wrath of God all the way to the end and ultimately meets the demands of His holiness and changes God's wrath into God's favor. Go figure. And Jesus was qualified. And in fact, he didn't have to do it for a thousand years. He didn't have to hang there for 10,000 years. And God finally said, you've hung there long enough. There was a dark Friday. And he went to the cross. And crusty old, B.O. smelling Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross. And there in a spiritual transaction, he took the sins of everybody in this room and the sins of everybody who ever lived since Adam and everybody who will ever live until the the Lord returns and the world ends. And he qualified to pay the penalty for all of that sin once and for all. And God was satisfied after about six hours. In fact, it became so heinous, it became so awful that this is why Jesus dug his fingernails into the soil in the garden, begging for God's will to be changed, that he would not have this cup of wrath poured out on him, because there came a moment when all of that sin became his sin, and he owned it all, and he he was qualified to take it upon himself, and his heavenly Father turned his back on him, and that's the point where Jesus couldn't stand the thought of. I can't totally understand all that, but God turned his back, and that's why Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But ultimately, it came to a point where Jesus completed this transaction. And once and for all, this God-man Jesus Christ, Jesus in the flesh, no mythological character, no spiritualization, a real human being who was yet all God, qualified, and God looked down and He said, Okay, that's good. And Jesus said, It is finished. And He gave up the ghost. And the work was done once and for all. Praise God. That is propitiation. He took the wrath of God, satisfied it, and now the wrath of God can be turned into the favor of God. 
Because we can go now to the cross, spiritually speaking, and we can admit our sinfulness, and by faith we receive this free gift, this transaction that was done in total and complete. Amen. Praise God. That's what Christmas is all about. You worried about a basketball or a globe? This afternoon, I'm going to visit a man who's on his deathbed. I tell you, he does not care about basketballs. And he doesn't care about globes. And I'm hoping that he cares about the fact that God gave him a gift in Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for his sin. It's the most important thing that ever happened in the world. You know that? The greatest thing that you can ever give your family is an outspoken, clear testimony of faith in Jesus Christ so that they don't wonder where you're going when you die. So that they can stand by your box or they can stand on your grave and they can say, as tears come down, but there are sorrows that are not like those who have no hope. And they can say, but we're going to see Daddy again. He loved Jesus and Jesus was the propitiation for his sin. That's a great gift. It's a great gift. Number four, there's a spiritual reason to destroy the devil's work. Number five, there's a practical motivational reason, and it is that Jesus is the perfect model of the Christian life. He couldn't have done those things if he hadn't taken on human flesh. Let's bow our heads. Um, This Christmas... It's a great time to examine your heart. You're trying to work your way to heaven? Trying to be good enough to get to heaven? What is it? Why don't you just simply acknowledge your sinfulness this morning? Positional sinfulness. Your Adamic nature because in Adam all die. The wages of that sin is death. It's a universal law that springs from the holy character of God's justice. But he gave Jesus Christ to be an an awesome gift. And he alone was worthy. He alone, the God-man Jesus Christ, qualified to be the propitiation for our sin. Would you put your faith and trust in him today? It was because of the incarnation that his substitutionary role was legitimate and accepted by God. Don't let it go to waste in your life today. By faith, acknowledge your sinfulness and the work of Christ as complete for you. He was a worthy sacrifice to substitute in for you. He was the propitiation. He met God's wrath demands. And now God's wrath can be turned into God's favor by no merit of your own. That's something you have to take care of with God in your own heart right now. You could say something like this, God... I recognize today that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I acknowledge my sinfulness. I ask your forgiveness. I accept the finished work of Christ on my behalf. A free gift. Become God's child today. Father, we thank you for the message. We thank you for the mystery of the incarnation. How springing out of it there are so many realities that took place because... In your sovereign, mysterious plan, you had our Lord Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, humble himself, become obedient unto death, even death on a cross, 
born of the Virgin Mary, taking on human flesh, qualifying to be our substitute. Thank you so much for this great gift. We acknowledge his worthiness today with grateful hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.